difference of vacationers bent on their own pleasure and distraction. And so they kept to themselves, unnoticed save by a housekeeper who spoke rudimentary English and did what little cooking and cleaning they required. Their plans, Ibrahim felt certain, were beyond anything that life had led this simple woman to contemplate. The only Jews she had ever known were no doubt rich Americans, like, by the evidence Ibrahim had sifted from photographs and books, the absentee owners of the villa, and probably she did not even know what they were. For now, at least, he and Iyad seemed safe. Yet Ibrahim was both frightened and sad. The dream state of this respite made him feel small, the puppet of unseen forces. He tried to imagine once more the pride of his friends, the admiration of strangers for whom, in death, he would enter into history. But here, in Akamal, this vision lacked the vividness it had in Ramallah. Instead, it seemed somehow juvenile, the fantasy of a boy who had placed himself in an action movie with which he had killed some idle afternoon. Their only contact with reality was Iyad's cell phone. Ibrahim was not allowed to answer it. Iyad would retreat to a corner of the villa, speaking Arabic in a low voice. His terse comments afterward made Ibrahim feel patronized, a child fed by his parents some rehearsed and edited version of a grown-up conversation held behind closed doors. It was this, he supposed, that made it even harder to imagine Iyad Hassan taking orders from a woman. But this woman, too, was surely only a conduit, the instrument of other men who shared their vision. In the end, they and their faceless masters were all servants of their people and of God. Ibrahim checked his watch. Inside, he knew Iyad was finishing his extended prayers, head bowed, eyes squinting tight, deepening the premature lines of a face too careworn for a man who, at twenty-four, was only two years older than Ibrahim himself. Sometimes Ibrahim believed that Iyad had known everything but doubt. Sometimes he wished that Iyad had not chosen him. This place was his oasis and his prison. He was a hostage to time that dragged with agonizing slowness, waiting for the phone call that would propel them into action. So, yet again, he sat on a stone bench atop a rocky ledge where waves struck with a low thud and shot spumes of white into the air, dampening his face and bare chest with a cool mist. The sandy space between the rocks and the villa was thick with palms. The pounding surf filled the air with a ceaseless watery static. The villa itself was bright and airy, and in the sheltered front garden was a swimming pool. Ibrahim could not imagine that anyone lived like this, except the Zionist settlers the red tile roofs of whose houses resembled the roof of this villa, or, he thought with fleeting disdain, the eminences of the Palestinian Authority, once his nominal leaders. But from the evidence of the photographs, this was the home of a bearded American Jew and his skinny wife, grinning maniacally at the camera in a parody of the vacationer's escapist glee. On their coffee table was a picture book entitled A Day in the Life of Israel, a catalogue of Zionist achievement, Schools and cities and deserts bursting with green orchards and bright fruits and vegetables. Still, what Ibrahim saw as he leafed through the pages was his grandfather dying in a refugee camp, a small wizened man with a gaze at once nearsighted and far away, the look of decades of wretchedness and dispossession. There was no book with a picture of his grandfather, he thought now. The old man had died as he had lived, seen only by his family. Remembering, Ibrahim felt his eyes mist with grief and anger. The world weeps, he thought, at the death of a Jewish child, 
but there is no press coverage of dead Palestinians unless they die killing Jews. There was no notice of his sister or the daughter she would never hold by a media obsessed with Jews blown up in cafes and restaurants by those brave few who chose to emerge from the faceless squalor of their camps, seeking to make their enemies suffer as deeply as did their people. And yet, though Ibrahim respected their courage and understood its purpose, he could not easily conceive of taking women and children with him to their doom. He must be grateful that he had been sent to kill a man, this man, the face of Israel. Ibrahim had known that face since childhood, as long as he had known Israeli soldiers and overcrowding and humiliation, that even dogs, but not Palestinians, were allowed to bark, that the real terrorists were not only the Jews, but the Americans, that when a Jew dies, the President of the United States weeps in sorrow. He had known all this and done...